1: Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Amira el subay the Deputy Director of the Muslim Justice League. The Muslim Justice League, also known as MJL, is an organization that fights against the massive increase in state surveillance by the U.S. government of its citizens. MGEL was founded in 2014 in response to the Obama administration implementing what was then known as CVE, Countering Violent Extremism. As you'll hear, that program, which is still around today but under a different name, recruits everyday citizens to spy on and report people in their community that are deemed, quote unquote, vulnerable to extremism. As you can imagine, programs like this have been blasted for not only being ineffective but also extremely racist and Islamophobic. In her role as Deputy Director, Amira helps create MJEL's strategy and helps lead their community organizing and advocacy campaigns. I asked her if she could tell us a little bit about what MJEL does.
2: Sure, yeah. So the Muslim Justice League was founded by Muslim women in 2014 in Boston and is still led by Muslim women. Um, And really what our work is about is fighting to defund and dismantle systems of surveillance that target Muslims and uh, other Black and Brown and immigrant communities who are labeled as a threat.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what those surveillance networks are?
2: Sure. Yeah. So MGEL was initially founded actually because Boston was named a pilot city for the Countering Violent Extremism Program, which was started under President Obama. Um, So CBE is really a a campaign, a program, a framework uh, driven by national security and intelligence and federal law enforcement agencies that Uh, purports to steer people off of pathways of radicalization or extremism. But really what our community knows from experiencing these programs is that CVE is both not supported by any sound evidence. It's based on discredited theories uh, that radical beliefs that may predict people to become violent extremists. And ultimately it, it falsely legitimizes discrimination against Muslims and and other people who are involved in political organizing and advocacy. So really what these these CVE programs do is recruit non-law enforcement professionals like doctors and counselors and mental health providers, teachers, imams, uh, and other community leaders to engage in soft surveillance to basically report on our community and refer folks based on this junk science, based on this list of, of indicators that are deeply Islamophobic and also incredibly vague, um, and to report these people to law enforcement. So, so these programs have been, initially it was named CVE, now it's been named TVTP, and now it has a new name called CP3, um, but they're housed under the Department of Homeland Security. And despite the name changes and... Uh, they're, they're still the same programs of recruiting uh, people, non-law enforcement uh, leaders and community members to report on and spy on uh, uh, predominantly Muslims and other black and brown communities as well.
1: It just It's fascinating that that's still happening in this day and age in America. And, and, and I don't think a lot of people really know that that is happening. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, some of the criteria like if let's, let's suppose cve recruited me and and i was supposed to report on you uh you know w- what kind of things would i be telling them um that you're doing um that that sounds suspicious
2: yeah totally so cve at, at, and many other counterterrorism programs are again based on this idea that you can identify individuals who are at risk of becoming violent extremists so it's in this pre-crime space, right? No no crime has been committed, but they have created this list of quote-unquote risk factors that would make someone uh, more likely to become a violent extremist. CVE in its original form outlined criteria such as religiosity, so growing a beard, going to the mosque more often, uh, starting to wear hijab, Uh, and political activism being more involved in specifically advocacy on Palestine. So those factors, which are pretty obviously Islamophobic, combined with more uh, vague criteria like feelings of alienation, um, difficulty in personal relationships, change in uh, routine as indicators for becoming a violent extremism extremist, which again, all of these risk indicators have been completely discredited by decades of scholarly research. And we know that it's it's completely based on junk science and it hasn't been successful in, in preventing violence. Um, but we know that's not actually the goal of these programs. The goal is to incarcerate and police and give cover to the broad surveillance of Muslims and black and brown communities.
1: It's just—I mean—you just describe things that I am probably everybody else has gone through in their twenties and thirties, or or, exactly. or whatever, <laughs> growing a beard, or feeling uh, distant, or whatever it may be. That's just—it's just—it's just shocking how everyday and routine those things are. Yet, then I could end up on some sort of list. Is—is that, is that what ends up happening? I end up on a list.
2: Um, it's not necessarily a list. I mean, I think that we we know that there are. Many lists that have existed of Muslims in the U.S. and also of activists and organizers, especially folks who are involved in in Palestine solidarity organizing in the U.S. But what it does lead to is like potentially being reported to local law enforcement, uh, to the FBI, to DHS. You can imagine how this would impact people who aren't U.S. citizens and the impact that having any sort of criminal record has uh, if you're a legal permanent resident or if you're undocumented or if you have any sort of immigration status that's not a U.S. citizen. These programs are really just giving police and law enforcement access to spaces that were previously unavailable to them and are uh, really having a An impact on how Muslims and other communities access social services that we need, right? Like, how are you going to talk to your therapist as a Muslim if you know that the hospital where your therapist works has a multi million dollar grant with DHS to report on you because you fit this vague list of indicators that could make you a potential violent extremist? So, that's really the impact we're seeing, and just the expansion of policing into every facet of society in our schools in our neighborhoods in our mosques in our mental health institutions um, all of these spaces where we're going for services and for care that are now turning into into sites of more policing and criminalization
1: yeah uh, I guess talk a little bit more about these grants so what what is in it for these hospitals and these educational institutions what why why are they? allowing this to happen? Why, why they, why do they want to be a part of this?
2: Um, well, I think one side of it is that our community institutions are so severely underfunded and especially, uh, organizations that serve Muslim communities, often their only sources of income of, of grants are specifically grants that, uh, are counterterrorism grants. Uh, through DHS, like often the only, only source of funding that our community centers have, which, again, is, is, a, is a structural issue of, of the prioritization of American tax dollars to continue to be poured into systems of policing as opposed to systems of care. I think the other part of it is our Muslim community in the U.S. has experienced so many years of surveillance and criminalization and policing specifically because of our religion and how that, unfortunately, so many people in our community have really bought into this idea that, uh, you know, if we have nothing to hide, that there's no problem and that, you know, we're we're the good Muslims and uh, we need to prove our Americanness and prove that we aren't a threat to society and prove that Muslims are neighborly and kind and, and generous and uh, will partner with law enforcement and will... Be great friends with police and cops uh, to dispel Islamophobia. And I think what we're really seeing is that this dichotomy between the good Muslim and the bad Muslim doesn't exist. And these programs seek to criminalize everyone in our community. And if it's not us today, that doesn't mean 10 years down the line, uh, these systems of criminalization aren't going to find ways to target us. And I think especially. Now, when we're seeing so much really powerful advocacy for Palestinian liberation, and we're seeing how people are being punished because of their political beliefs, uh, I think it's really important for us to know that safety in our communities is never going to come from more police and more surveillance. It's going to come from actual investment in our communities to solve the problems that we've been facing of... You know, housing instability, and uh, lack of mental health care resources, and uh, funding for our public schools, uh, after school programs for our for our kids, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's infuriating. The more that you talk about this, and you know, I knew I knew a little bit about it, but the more that you're talking about this, the more just angry I get. I mean, is, is the assumption that you and I have been targeted?
2: Um, I definitely don't doubt it. Uh, I mean, especially, (laughs) I think, I think it's definitely a combination of like being outspoken about my identity and obviously being perceived as a Arab American Muslim, in addition to like the very public facing uh, advocacy and organizing that I do that is explicitly, uh, abolitionist in nature, I think definitely, (laughs) uh, definitely makes me a a target and, and a lot of other folks too. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's interesting to see that it's not just Muslim organizations, it's other social justice movements from not only across the country, but across the world that are speaking out against this.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's really important. And recently we led A advocacy day uh, joint with uh, Media Justice and the Black and Brown Activism Defense Collective uh, to talk with Congress members about uh, ending these surveillance programs, including the TVTP program under DHS and other programs that, again, target uh, Black, brown, Muslim, and immigrant communities. Uh, especially those who are involved in in political advocacy. And I think we really have to look throughout history to see how the U.S. government has used terms like terrorist and extremist to justify the policing and surveillance of the communities most impacted by white supremacy, right? Thinking about the COINTELPRO program.
1: Sorry, what was that one?
2: COINTELPRO. Yeah. Yeah. During the Black Liberation Movement, during the Civil Rights Movement, and how civil rights leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were labeled extremists and terrorists, and, and how that label specifically uh, justified the illegal surveillance and infiltration and disruption of mass movements for justice. I think we're seeing that today, as, not only is the goal of these surveillance programs to criminalize our communities, it's also to stop us from organizing, right? It's also to get us to to keep quiet about uh, the violation of our human rights and civil liberties and to keep us in fear to know that we're just constantly being watched, right? And yeah. in, our, in any space that we go as Muslims, there is some form of surveillance uh, watching our every move.
1: No doubt, no doubt. Well, where did CVE come from? Why why did this happen, and Mm -hmm. why did it come about during the Obama administration of all administrations?
2: Yeah, so really, CVE came about because it was this new form of soft policing, which was really what the Obama administration uh, pushed for. Was that they were going to change the way that policing happened in America and shift from these horrific images of, you know, FBI raids? Right? It was that was a, an image that was so popular in the in the memory of of Muslim Americans is, you know, the FBI knocking at your door and interrogating you. And the Obama administration, I think really was a big force in shifting to these quote unquote community policing and soft policing programs like CVE, right? So instead of the FBI coming to knock on your door, now it's the teachers at your school reporting your children to DHS. Now it's the youth workers at your local nonprofit where your kids do a basketball program reporting to law enforcement, right? It's these familiar faces, these faces, these people that we trust, um, who are now becoming uh, agents of policing in our lives.
1: Yeah, it's it just that. Uh... I, I'm, I don't even have words for, for how I feel about about knowing that this is happening and, and still yeah. is happening today. Is there a way for us to find out who has gotten these grants or talk to me about that?
2: Yeah, so we will know soon. I think the grants for this most recent uh, fiscal year were Uh, like the applications, the application period just ended. So soon, I think probably over the summer, we'll find out which organizations and institutions are receiving grants under this program. But a lot of it does require research and public records requests to find out the, the specifics of how these programs are operating in our cities. But at the same time, a lot of our, of when we become aware of these programs is actually from community members themselves mm-hmm. who uh, are, are noticing things at their local masjids or community centers um, and are the ones bringing it to us.
1: L- like what, what kind of stuff are they noticing?
2: Uh, well, for example, recently in Boston, uh, a few years ago, there was a program called uh, YPIP, which was a... Part of the Boston Police Department and YPIP stood for um, the Youth and Police Initiative Plus. And it was a CVE program that specifically targeted Somali youth aged 13 through 17 again, targeted by the Department of Homeland Security that really treated these young Somali men as inherently susceptible to violent extremism. The goals, the stated objectives of this program were to enhance the understanding of of the threat of violent extremism in the Boston Somali community and to build relationships between the Somali community and police, right? It was Somali youth and Somali uh, teenage boys who really led the advocacy on that front and said, we refuse to to be seen as potential violent extremists. This is yeah. not the support that we need and this is inherently racist and Islamophobic. And it was really their advocacy that led to ultimately the, the ending of this program in, in Boston.
1: Are there any people that are, or any stories that you have about people who've been wrongly targeted, you know, like FBI come to their house and ask questions or or whatever it may be, or even like gotten worse, so like maybe they've gone to jail or, or anything like that?
2: Yeah. Um, I I can't think of any specific stories off the top of my head. No, it's no really hard because it's it's hard to even get people to share their stories because, again, there's so much fear of criminalization to even come out and speak out about how we've been targeted by various forms of law enforcement, right? Right, I think a big part of the impact that we've seen is Muslims just not seeking the services that we need, like not going to mental health care institutions, not seeking out social services uh, because of this fear of surveillance and because knowing that simply because of your religious identity, you will be perceived as a threat. Um, purely because of that, and I think that's one part of it in addition to the like fear of even organizing or joining any sort of political space and trying to to steer away from anything political um, because of how, again, being constantly perceived as as a threat.
1: We'll be right back after the break. Amira talks about how she was the youngest Arab ever to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. This is American
3: Muslim Project.
1: Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Amira El-Soubey, the Deputy Director of the Muslim Justice League. Outside of her social justice work, Amira loves to hike. And in 2013, at the age of 16, she became the youngest Arab ever to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I asked her what hiking means to her.
2: I have always loved spending time in nature. I uh, am an only child raised by a single mother, and my mom and I spent a lot of time in the outdoors together uh, growing up and a lot of time hiking together. It was our main activity that we did together. Yeah, my mom always has always instilled in me a belief that I can do anything I put my mind to and that um, challenging myself is a really important part of how I grow as in in every single way. And I think for me, uh, climbing mountains has been an amazing way to learn about what can happen when you challenge yourself to do something you've never done before. And when you find out so many new things that you're capable of when you challenge yourself and yeah, mountains have really always been that place for me, where I can learn what I'm really capable of and what I can do when I'm focused and determined, uh, and when I have people by my side to to support me along the way. So Kilimanjaro was the first big mountain I did on my 16th birthday, and I've climbed in Russia and Nepal and Oman and a bunch of other countries since then. And Hope to continue doing it for the rest of my life as, as my mom has done. That's yeah.
1: amazing. What, any lessons learned from climbing Kilimanjaro on your 16th birthday?
2: Um, I think a big lesson I, I learn on every mountain is I think there's a lot of pressure and focus that's put on reaching the summit and reaching the top of that mountain. And I really have learned so much from uh, deprioritizing that finale and really focusing on enjoying the journey and enjoying uh, all the things that come along the way. And knowing that, especially when you climb to high altitudes, um, there's a lot of up and down. Uh, there's a lot of two steps forward, one step back along the way, um, and having to be really, really deeply in touch with your body. Um, I think as much as I learned what I'm capable of when I push myself, I also learned how important it is to be honest about my capacity and how I feel, because that can be a life or death determination. I really learned a lot about becoming in tune with my physiology um, by being on the mountain and seeing to what degree I can push myself. That is healthy and and where. I need to draw the line. And I think a lot of those lessons about boundaries, uh, I learned by climbing mountains.
1: I want to just shift gears a little bit. Can you tell me why you're so interested in social justice initiatives and working at Muslim Justice League?
2: I chose to start organizing for or with Muslim Justice League as a member a couple years ago, and now as a staff member Um, really because I was looking for a community uh, where I could be my full self and also a place where like a political home where I could organize. Um, I really wanted both of those things. And I think I had often felt really challenged to find spaces where I could be political and organized, but where I couldn't really bring uh, my Muslim identity, my Arab identity. And I think MJL really married those two things that I was really looking for. And yeah, felt like a totally something I had never experienced before. After spending so many years in my adolescence, like excluding myself from Muslim spaces out of fear of being exposed as, as not being Muslim enough until I found Muslim spaces that did accept me as I am. And, you know, places where I could talk about my political vision and and be challenged in my political vision and learn alongside people who had not only shared values, but shared experiences too. Really, I started organizing in college at Tufts um, around Palestine. I was part of Tufts Students for Justice in Palestine And for similar reasons of, you know, at a predominantly white institution like Tufts, that was also an extremely wealthy institution. I was really looking for other adubs that I could be friends with and organize with. And I knew that I would potentially find them in in Palestine solidarity spaces. And I did. That was right. And I think organizing around Palestine really was so impactful in shaping my vision for collective liberation and really really helping me understand how we have to be consistent in our political analysis and in our vision and know that when we stand against all the forms of policing and surveillance here and the militarization of our police here and police brutality here, we have to be consistent in that and i think palestine organizing really helped me grasp that and talk about that in a way that brought me closer to abolition and that's really another reason why i wanted to organize with with muslim justice league is to be part of transforming systems fundamentally and not uh reforming them knowing that you know i i personally don't believe there's any version of a reformed police or prison system that will keep black and brown communities safe.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So what do you, what do you think the solution is?
2: I think the, that we have so many of the solutions in our communities right now, especially as, as Muslims, I think we've really had to show up for each other because we knew we couldn't rely on state services to do that for us. And I think that we know that police have not protected us and police have not kept us safe. And I think that we really need a fundamental reimagining of what does keep us safe. And to me, that looks like having fully funded schools and free health care and uh, non-armed emergency services that people can call and substance abuse services and housing for all. Um, And all of these programs that we're not funding um, and we're not investing in and we're not solving any of the root problems that bring people into uh, the prison system like poverty. And I think that we're we're seeing how in the past few decades and, and really throughout history, how poverty is criminalized, and how many systems serve to keep our black and brown and Muslim communities uh, poor and underserved to create more pipelines towards uh, incarceration and deportation and detention.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder, over the past year, have you become more hopeful, more pessimistic, more optimistic about where we're headed?
2: Um, I think, and, and Mariam Kaba, an, an abolitionist organizer who I've learned so much from, uh, often says that hope is a discipline, and I definitely think about that a lot. I don't feel hopeful every day, but I know that without practicing hope uh, actively and actively seeking out places where I can find uh, hope and inspirational is the only way uh, to sustain our movements for the long term, because we know we're we're in it for the long haul. Uh, I'm in this movement for the rest of my life, and we're I'm going to play different roles in this work throughout my life. But um, the the commitment is unwavering, and I think that's why it's also really important. Uh, in addition to all the organizing work that we do at Muslim Justice League, to also have space for for joy and for fun and silliness and community building uh, with our Muslim community here in Boston. And I think that is really uh, what what keeps us going, because if we're just working all the time, we are going to burn out. And I think we really have to prioritize um, the joy and the fun in this movement as, as in order to maintain that, that discipline of hope.
1: Very, very well said. Um, Amira, thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: My conversation with Amira el Subay was recorded in June of 2021. We'll have links to the Muslim Justice League and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. As always, we love feedback. So email us at feedback at com with any comments or ways that we can improve the show. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaleon Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Mark Lindsey Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. We are online at AmericanMuslimProject.com.